Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. You noticed it too. As I walked in, I was met by a Walmart greeter. And it's been a while. There was an employee there just inside the doors whose primary job was to smile and welcome customers into the store as we arrived. And I don't know if you'd noticed, but for a while there, it seemed like every time I went into Walmart, there was nobody there. That position had been eliminated at my local store. I didn't know if it was connected to the pandemic or what, but it had been a long time since I'd been greeted at the door until this week. And this week, I got a smile and a hello, welcome to Walmart from somebody that was wearing a blue vest and it felt like the return of something good. Now, if you go to Walmart's sister store, to Sam's Club, or if you visit their competitor, Costco, you'll notice that there's always somebody at the door there, right? There's always somebody standing at the door at Sam's Club and at Costco. They have always, pandemic or not, they have always had employees that are waiting at the front door, but you know it's for a different reason, right? It's because they're guarding the free samples, They're keeping an eye on that. They're making sure that the moochers don't get in there. You've got to pay for that stuff. And so at the entrance to Sam's or at the entrance to Costco, you've got to show ID, right? Like you've got to demonstrate that you have a membership so that you can go inside and shop. You've got to be qualified and you've got to be in good standing. And so at Sam's and Costco, the employee at the door wants to see your membership card to make sure that you're bona fide, to make sure that you're allowed to enter the premises. They're checking your credentials and they're making sure that those free stamp, free samples stay safe. And if you make it inside, If you get past the gatekeeper on your way out, what's going to happen? There's going to be somebody else standing at the door, right? Somebody else waiting at the door, and they're going to ask to see your receipt so that they can cautiously count and scope out all of the items in your cart just to make sure that you're not trying to pull a fast one on them like you did that last time, you know? I know it seems to be such a small thing, but there's a big difference in the greeter experience between these different stores. You go down to Walmart, and the greeter says, come on in. You belong. We are thrilled that you're here. You go down to the warehouse store and the greeter says, I, not so fast. Hold on just a second. I guess everybody knows what it feels like when you don't belong. Lots of people go through life feeling like they just don't fit, like they're not welcomed, like they're not wanted, like they're not appreciated. It's easy in this life to feel alienated but isn't it sweet? Isn't it a sweet feeling when you find the place where you belong? Isn't it refreshing when you look around and you realize I'm with my people? Because when you're with your people, you can be yourself. And when you're with your people, you can let down your guard And when you're with your people, you can laugh and you can smile and you can feel comfortable. Life is better when you're in the company of your people. 
And for the, fast, the past few weeks here at Heritage, we've been talking about how these are your people. These right here are your people because when you belong to God, you also belong to the people of God. This is a truth that we have to bury deep down inside of our hearts. This series of messages that we've been working our way through called Together, in, this is a series in which we're learning about the connection between the vertical relationship with, that we have with God and the horizontal relationships that we have with people. You see, our connection to God is designed to inspire our connections to others. What I mean is that when God is working in your heart, when God has access to your soul and the trajectory of your life, God starts transforming you into somebody who's more patient and more kind and more loving and more peaceful. And you know where that shows up, right? It shows up in those horizontal relationships. But it's also true that our horizontal relationships with people can contribute to our confidence in God. Because when we start receiving encouragement and support from other Christ followers, or when we get to have a front row seat to watch as God shows up and engages and works in the life of people around us, that entire experience can build our faith. It's like the horizontal relationships are supercharging the vertical relationship. And so we know that community is an important aspect of the spiritual journey. We grow in faith and we live out our faith in the context of community. But today in our series, we have to acknowledge an indisputable fact, a regrettable fact, but a fact that we must be aware of we have to acknowledge that this community that is so precious to us and so important to our spiritual journey, community is fragile. Community can break easily. And I don't need to give you a whole lot of examples of this, right? Because you knew this before you came in. You showed up this morning and I don't have to explain to you because you already know that it's difficult to keep a group of people connected with each other for very long. I don't have to point out to you because you see it every day that our society is predisposed to disagree and to disconnect over any issue that we can come up with to argue about, right? I don't need to remind you because it has already broken your heart that marriages and families and business partnerships and friendships and even churches break up all the time because of our human inclination to live for ourselves. I don't have to remind you, because you already know community is fragile. And deep community, deep, lasting community, doesn't just happen. It has to be built. It has to be formed. It has to be invested in. It has to have intention behind it. And then once that deep, lasting community is formed, it has to be maintained. Because if that, if that community is not maintained, then you know what happens. Division starts to creep in quietly. It's like rust. 
it starts to show up and before long, suddenly you've got a much bigger problem than you even imagined that you could have. And the thing is, Christian community, Christian community is just as susceptible to division as any other collection of humans. In fact, I'm gonna correct that. I'm gonna say, I think Christian community might be more susceptible I think Christian community might be more at risk for division because of the strong emotions that get involved when we start talking about religion and we start talking about how to honor God and we start talking about how to raise our kids together. When we start talking about these things that are so close to our hearts, it makes us particularly vulnerable to disagreement and division. And Christian community is at risk. But Christian community also has spiritual resources for unity at its disposal that can give us a leg up and a better shot at staying connected. And so today in our study together, we are talking about one of the spiritual techniques that can set Christian communities up for success, that can set Christian communities apart, and that can make Christian communities shine like stars in the darkness. And we're gonna base our study in a passage of scripture that's found near the end of the New Testament book of Romans. In fact, we're going to be in chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you, you're welcome to join us there or use your Heritage app or the Bible app. We'll put these verses up here on the screen too. We have spoken from Romans numerous times before in this room, and we've even used Romans once so far in this series of messages, but I have never preached from this particular chapter, this particular passage of Scripture, and I'm so excited to share this with you because it is so relevant relevant to our modern context. And this passage offers such incredible wisdom and possibility for our life together if we take this passage seriously, if we read it like we mean it. So first, let me give you a little bit of context. You may remember that the book of Romans is actually a letter it was written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the very earliest Christian missionaries. He lived almost 2,000 years ago, and he traveled extensively around the Mediterranean Sea, spreading the news about Jesus and planting churches. And in this particular instance, the instigation, instigating event for writing the book of Romans, he's, he's writing a letter to a group of Christians that he had actually never met in person. He'd never been to Rome. He'd never been a part of planting these churches. Most likely, the people who were part of these Roman churches had moved there from places further east, closer to the places where Paul had been working. But he's writing to these Christians who are part of this house church network in Rome. And Paul is using this letter to introduce himself to this group of people and to explain some of his understandings of the gospel of Jesus because he's hoping that in the future they might be willing to partner with him on some missionary projects as he tries to take the good news of Jesus all the way to the western end of the Mediterranean Sea and visit Spain and Portugal. He's, so he's, he's written this long book to tell you about who he is and what he knows about Jesus. And the first 11 chapters of the book, they delve 
delve in deep. I mean, it is some thick, heavy, deep theology explaining about how God had worked through the Jews for centuries to eventually make it possible for everyone to be saved from the consequences of our choices. And the big concept that you have to understand from the first 11 chapters, I'm going to give you the summary of the first 11 chapters of Romans. And the big thing you've got to understand coming out of those chapters is this that because of Jesus's death and resurrection, I think we have this on the screen, because of Jesus's death and resurrection, humans can now be justified before God purely on the basis of faith. All right, don't skip over this. This is crucial for understanding not only Paul's argument, but it's Paul would tell you this is crucial for understanding Christianity at all. This is the whole thing. This is what this story is about. And some of you showed up here today needing to hear this, whether you realized it or not. Some of you showed up not being fully confident that this is true, but it is that because of Jesus's death and resurrection, humans can now be justified before God purely on the basis of faith in Jesus, that it is our belief in Jesus that opens the door for God's gift of salvation. In fact, Paul says in chapter 10, and you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And for some of you, that sounds too easy. For some of us, we read this, and that sounds too easy. It sounds like it sets the bar really low for humans to receive salvation. And Paul says, that's the point. That is exactly what I'm trying to get you to feel. You see, Paul is explaining that human effort doesn't amount to anything when it comes to conquering death. He's explaining that Jesus achieved victory over death on our behalf and then gifted the reward to us. This is an earth-shattering concept because practically every other religion in human history has boiled down to a core message that says you must obey in order to be acceptable. Every other attempt that humanity has made to engage the divine, to connect with the gods, to appease whoever was out there, has boiled down to this message that said you have to obey, you have to do all of the right things, you have to enter the right code, you have to achieve the right status in order to be acceptable. But the good news of Jesus that Paul is explaining says because of what Jesus did, you are fully and freely accepted. So now obey. In response, as a result, Jesus makes our salvation possible simply on the basis of faith. We don't do anything to earn the free gift of God, which is eternal life. But sometimes, sometimes Christians disagree with one another about what the responsive obedient part looks like. You're hearing, read this again, because of what Jesus did, you are fully and freely accepted. So now, in response, as a response to God's gift, live in obedience. 
And sometimes Christians disagree about what that obedience part looks like. Sometimes we start getting our button heads about what that requires of us. And just like in every other community of humans, when Christians start to disagree with one another, there is a potential for conflict and there's a potential for division. But Paul has a reminder for us and a prescription for this kind of conflict, which is what we're about to read about in chapter 14. Paul starts this chapter, this passage, by saying, welcome the person who is weak in faith, but not in order to argue about differences of opinion. Now, cheating and looking ahead, let me tell you that Paul is about to lay out a couple of examples of behaviors that good, faithful Christian people in his day and age disagreed about. He's about to give some examples of some Christian behaviors that half the Christians thought were unchristian behaviors And he's going to give some examples of some choices to abstain that half the Christians thought were unnecessary. He's going to talk about how some Christians in that time period, in that context, and in that culture, some of those Christians had no problem eating meat even if there was a chance that it came from a sacrifice that had been made to an idol god or it might not have been prepared using Jewish kosher methods. Now, I know you don't care about this. It's okay. We're going for a principle here. Paul's going to tell us that those meat eaters ate meat with a clean conscience because they had strong faith that their standing before God was secured solely based on what Jesus did and not based on what they eat or don't eat. They are convinced that Jesus is enough. And so they eat freely without any fear and without any guilt. But there were other Christians in their community who felt like, boy, it just doesn't feel right. It's gotta, there's gotta be something wrong with eating meat that's connected to idol worship or meat that might've been slaughtered with non-kosher methods. And so some of these Christians ended up living a vegetarian lifestyle. And for them, it was a matter of conscience and faithfulness and purity. And Paul is gonna tell us that these vegetarian Christians in that context, don't, don't make a joke out of it. I'm not saying anything about vegetarians today. But the vegetarian Christians in that context and with their reasoning, that he's going to say they had a weaker faith. They had a weaker faith, meaning that their confidence in Jesus' sufficiency was still under development. It was still growing. And we don't relate to this issue today. We never go to the grocery store and see meat that has a sticker that says, you know, this was involved in idol worship. Like we don't, this is not part of our experience But we do have frequent situations that pop up where there's a difference of opinion about how good Christians ought to live, don't we? From time to time, we run into situations as a family. We run into situations as a church trying to exist in a surrounding culture. We run into situations where there's difference of opinion about what Christians do and about how Christians live. And I want you to hear this. Paul's not too concerned about hashing things out and nailing down an answer. He does not 
give any kind of direction to the church in Rome that says, let me tell you what the right answer is on this meat and vegetables question so that you can just get past it and move on. He doesn't say that, not even close. He's more concerned about the way that the people treat one another in their disagreement. He's more concerned with how we engage with each other while we disagree. In fact, if we were to rephrase verse 1, the verse we've already read, what Paul is saying here is, if there's another Christian whose understanding of obedience looks different from yours, accept them without trying to fix them. If there's another Christian who understands God's expectations differently than you do, accept them without making it your goal to fix them. And I mean, come on, Paul. That's cute. But you can't just let it go, right? (laughs) Maybe you can relate to this cartoon strip where this dog asks his owner, are you going to take me for a walk? And the owner who's busy at the computer says, I can't. Someone is wrong on the internet. I don't have time. I have to correct a wrong that's been posted. I mean, you can't just let it go. It reminds me of that progressive insurance commercial where Flo and all of her insurance friends have taken a day off and they go to the beach and they agree that they're going to avoid any insurance talk so that they can fully relax. But then Flo starts to overhear a conversation from some other beachgoers talking about their lousy boat and RV insurance and it's just more than she can take. And finally she snaps and she pulls her progressive apron out of her pocket and she runs over and starts telling them about how she can save because she can't let it go. I mean, they don't know. They need to know better. They need to be instructed. They need to be taught. They need to be corrected. It's difficult to just let someone else be wrong when you know the right answer, isn't it? But let me tell you, that's exactly what Paul's suggesting. That's exactly what Paul is recommending. He says, welcome each other or accept each other without trying to correct one another. And he's not saying that because truth doesn't matter. He's not saying that because he doesn't have an opinion. He's not saying that because truth is unimportant. He's saying it because unity in the church matters more than uniformity in the church. Our connection to each other matters more than our perfect agreement with one another. And Paul clarifies, he's he's clarifying priorities here. He's saying sticking together is more important than acing the test. He says it this way in verse 3. He says, those who eat meat must not look down on the ones who don't. And the ones who don't eat meat must not judge the ones who do because, don't miss this, because God has already accepted them. This is a crucial point for us because Paul's not saying both positions are correct. He's not saying the meat eaters and the vegetarians are both right. But he is saying both positions are accepted by God. Now, you may need a minute to do the math on that in your head. 
For some of us, this makes our heads spin. But I got to tell you, this is a common theme in the New Testament. Jesus talks about how the heavenly Father, God our Father, places a higher value on mercy than on precision obedience. Jesus says love and unity are to be the defining characteristics of any community of his followers. And so the truth that we have to try to wrap our brains around here is that in the end, Jesus's opinion is the only opinion that matters. Paul says in verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servants? Who are you to decide whether the vegetarians have it right or the meat eaters have it right? Who are you? He says, Someone else's servants stand or fall before their own Lord or their own master. And then this is one of the most beautiful verses in all the scripture, this little sentence right here, Paul says, and it's in parentheses in my translation, he says, and guess what? They will stand. They will stand because the Lord has the power to make them stand. Not because they got the question right, but because God can do it. He says they're not going to stand on their, because of their own obedience. They're not going to stand in the, at the last day. They're not going to stand because of their own precision. They're not going to stand because of their accuracy or because of how much they studied. They're going to stand because God's going to make it happen, he says. And once again, this is Paul's appeal to the power and the good news of Jesus. You know, many of us here in this room <clears throat> grew up in churches that were constantly chasing <clears throat> perfect obedience to God's rules and regulations for the church and for our faith. And in our church's histories, there were debates and there were lectures and there were books and there were periodicals where teachers would deliberate the minute details of ancient Greek manuscripts and their meanings. Never mind that all of the Greek manuscripts we had were fragmented copies of copies of copies, not originals. And never mind that both sides of each debate were using the very same rhetorical strategies, the very same argumentative strategies, just with different supporting verses to bolster their position. And I don't mean to speak condescendingly, because I've got to say I am so thankful for the church heritage that I was raised in. It is healthy and it is wise and it is godly to be on a constant quest to better understand truth. And I am thankful, I am grateful for the tools that were handed down to me to help me handle the scriptures responsibly. But sometimes, Sometimes in the heritage that raised me, and maybe you too, sometimes the debates got personal. Sometimes the arguments became corrosive and caustic, and sometimes the teachers became dismissive of one another. Too often, in fact, people took sides with their favorite preacher or their favorite teacher, their favorite professor or their favorite position, and began to look down on everyone else who disagreed and more often than I care to admit, I've taken sides too. 
And I've looked down on people who disagreed with me. Maybe it's human nature to do that. Maybe that's natural. But Paul's calling us to live not by our human nature. Paul's calling us to live by the spiritual nature that has been gifted to us and demonstrated to us. And this morning, we don't have time to read all 36 of the verses in chapters 14 and 15 that are relevant to this discussion, but I want to show you one verse that's at the pinnacle of Paul's line of reasoning, and it's chapter 15, verse 7, where Paul says, Welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. Depending on which translation you're reading, yours might say something like, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. And the reason that Paul's appeal is so powerful and so provocative is because it reminds us that none of us should be counting on obedience or accuracy to save us. We are all lost without Jesus, and we are all found because of Jesus. We are accepted, we are included, we are invited, and we are loved. And it's hard to believe it, but love can disagree. Love can disagree with each other. Love doesn't always have to see things the same. Because no matter what, love always perseveres. And while passages like this, Romans 14 and 15, might leave us with lots of unanswered what-if questions, I'm sure that we could go on and on and talk for hours about all of the different possible implications of these texts. It should be clear to us what our Heavenly Father values the most, and that is our acceptance of one another. I read a story about a local political race that happened in 2018, right about this time of year, preparing for the November midterms that year. There were two candidates who were campaigning to be elected as the representative for their county in the State House of Vermont. And one of these candidates was a staunch Republican and the other was an impassioned Democrat and their stances on the issues were exactly what you would expect and they were nothing alike and they both wanted really badly to win the election. But for all of their disagreement, they found common ground in one thing and that was the importance of valuing one another, the importance of accepting one another. In fact, these two candidates believed in this so much that they shocked their their little community. Remember, they were just running for a position that was a county position that would go to the Capitol. But they they shocked this little community one night because they held a a debate in the local library and and they argued the issues and they clarified their positions. But then, once the debate was over, these two candidates pushed the tables and the podiums aside And they pulled musical instruments out of cases, he on the guitar and she on the cello, and they played a duet that they had practiced together. They sang a song, an Eddie Vedder song, about a society that wasn't so cutthroat and so competitive. It struck a nerve in that little county, 
In fact, word got out and CBS News sent a team up to Vermont to investigate what was happening and to do interviews and ask around town. And the journalists were surprised when they rolled into town and they found more than a few houses that had signs in their yards supporting both candidates. It was a win for civility, a win for acceptance. And that little Vermont community was inspired by two people who disagreed with one another but decided that love can disagree. Love can disagree and accept one another. It's possible. You know, when I was in middle school, I played the violin. There's a reason that whenever we have a violin featured up here, it's not me. Um, we have much more capable violin players in our, in our church family, thank God. But when I was in middle school, I played the violin. And my most vivid memory of orchestra class for those three years of school was that my orchestra teacher had this speaker, this mechanical device over at her desk, and she could adjust a dial and turn up the volume, and it would play just one hum, one constant sound. Hmm. And she would go by every single music stand, every single chair, and she would take each of our instruments at the beginning of class and she would tune that instrument to that note that was playing. And she could tune every string based on just knowing that one note, what that one note should sound like. And after she was done with that, and after we had two and a half years of experience, we could actually make some music that sounded like it wasn't quite half bad. Crazy thing was, we never once tuned our instruments together. We never once adjusted the, t the tone of our instruments so that I could match the person sitting next to me and they could match the person sitting next to them. The one thing we did was we tuned all of our instruments to the same guide. We tuned all of our instruments to the same foundation, the same bass. And what's interesting is, if you tune 50 instruments to the same tone, even if they've never played at the same time during the tuning, suddenly they're tuned to each other because their focus, their attention, their aim is on the same goal. And this is who we are. This is who we're supposed to be. This is what God is creating. This is what God is orchestrating around here is that there's cellos and there's basses and there's violas and there's violins. There's all of these different parts. And the truth is that when we play our tune, it doesn't sound exactly the same. When we live out what God has called us to do with our lives, when we practice obedience to God, it doesn't sound exactly the same in this section as it does in that, that section. We're all doing this journey on our own, and we've talked about our diversity and our different backgrounds and experiences and preferences and all of that. We, it doesn't sound the same, but you know what? It plays together. It plays together if we all remember that it was Jesus who accepted us first. All of the parts 
jive. All of the parts harmonize together when we have attuned ourselves to the gift and the generosity of Jesus Christ. And then, even if our music sounds different, we remember love can disagree. And here we are. We're just fortunate to be invited ourselves. And so who are we to judge somebody else? Who are we to judge someone else in their earnest attempt at obedience to God? Who are we?